Okay, we are continuing our series following the words and works of Jesus in the book of Luke. If you poke around a little bit in some of the RUF podcasts out there, you will probably find a few series titled Hard Sayings of Jesus. Hard Sayings of Jesus. This passage is one of those, I think, because in it we have Satan, we have demon possession and evil spirits, and we have some violent imagery here. But in this passage, Jesus himself says that we should hear the word of God and keep it. So we should pay close attention and we should avoid some of the, I think, kind of red herrings in this passage. And the way to do that uh, is to focus on Jesus. To focus on Jesus. He is the star of the passage. He's the star of the whole Bible. And our eyes should be on him. So let me read our passage. It's also printed in your bulletin. From Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 28. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom... Do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for tonight and we thank you for uh, all that you have called here. And we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds and our understanding uh, to your word and to all that you have to teach us tonight in it. And some, some hard sayings and a hard passage. And uh, we pray that you would do all this for your glory and in your son's name. Amen. Well, you don't have to know a whole lot about history to know that the U.S. played a big role in both world wars, in World War I and World War II. But you may not know or have forgotten that the U.S. actually did not want to be in either of these wars. We tried to avoid them. The U.S. wanted to avoid foreign entanglements. And so we really didn't enter these two great wars of the 20th century until our hand was kind of forced. In the First World War, because of German U-boat attacks, and in the second, by the famous attack on Pearl Harbor. So we didn't really push our way in. We more so we got pulled in. And, you know, once we got in those wars, we were all in. But in in reality, we tried our best to to remain neutral. 
but it's really, really difficult to re- remain neutral when there is war raging all around you. Neutrality in geopolitics is really tough to achieve. But what this passage is telling us is that neutrality in spirituality isn't just difficult to achieve, that it's actually impossible. That neutrality in spirituality is utterly impossible. In other words, in this great war that is raging right now in between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, there are no neutral players. Like nobody is in the middle, no one's above the fray, nobody can just kind of hope to stay out of it. The scripture says we are all members of a kingdom. The question, the question is just whose kingdom we're a part of. And so that's what we're going to think about tonight. We'll look at three questions in this passage. Whose kingdom, whose house, and whose blessing? Whose kingdom, whose house, and whose blessing? And what we're going to find is that the coming of Jesus Christ forces us to choose. We either we are in his kingdom by faith or we are outside of his kingdom by unbelief. So first of these, whose kingdom? Jesus is on his journey to Jerusalem, and so uh, tension with the Jewish authorities is really building. Jesus is dealing with a man who is demon-possessed, and this man has been made mute by uh, this demon. And Jesus carries out the healing. He exercises the demon by the force of of his divine power. But then something really interesting happens. Uh, It says the crowd is divided in their response to this miracle. So we've seen this this semester, uh, that some marvel. They're they're slack-jawed, they're amazed, they're like delighted by what they have seen. But others have a different response. And Luke simply says some of the crowd, but we know from Matthew and Mark, who also talk about this story, that it's the scribes and the Pharisees who respond differently. So here's what they say, verse 15. They're talking about Jesus. He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Still others, uh, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So what's happening here? I mean, is this kind of run-of-the-mill uh, Jesus versus like the stick-in-the-mud, the kind of rule-oriented Pharisees? Uh, I think there's more happening here. Spiritually, what's actually happening here is sort of like if you uh, remember the scene in Braveheart. This movie is going to date me. I'm sure there's a better like uh, example of this in Game of Thrones or something. Two armies clashing, but I've never seen Game of Thrones. But uh, in Braveheart, two armies meet. In the clash, the, um, the explosion is, is catastrophic. And that's what's happening here. This is the kingdom of God in like a a melee, a showdown with the kingdom of Satan. And so Christ Jesus is behind enemy lines. And he has just rescued this man. He's just ripped this demon-possessed prisoner of war uh, from the hands of Satan. And the devil and his followers hate it. And they hate Jesus and they want him dead. And so the battle is on. And so this uh, group of unbelievers, the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they return fire, but they are confused. Satan is so underhanded, he's so subtle, he's so tricksy, that they don't even understand who they're actually fighting for. They're not really sure whose side they're on, actually, but they know that Jesus is on the other side, that they're against him. And so thinking that they are with God, that they are on God's side, they accuse Jesus of collusion with Satan. 
They say, you cast out demons by the devil, by the prince of demons. That's kind of like a, that's a pretty heavy charge, right? And kind of a strange thing to say. But really, it's unsurprising. Because what we know about Satan from Scripture is that he is an accuser. And so uh, these people are like junior accusers. They're like apprentice accusers. And they turn their sights on the Son of God because he's the king. And because he's bringing a new kingdom with him. And they're threatened by it. And they really hate him for it. And so this is not really just like a smear campaign. Like uh, this is not just like a put down type thing. There's, there's more going on. They're really accusing Jesus of sorcery. They're saying that he should be stoned, which is the penalty for that. Or out of the same unbelief, they ask for a sign from heaven because they refuse to believe that Jesus himself is the ultimate, that they're looking at the sign from heaven. So how does Jesus respond? He's under fire. He's getting shelled. He basically says, that is absurd. If what you're saying is true, if I cast out demons by the prince of demons, I would be undermining my own kingdom. Moreover, he says in verse 19, if I'm in league with Satan, what about your sons who claim to do the same thing? Why are they not accused? In other words, it appears that the followers of the scribes and Pharisees were claiming to cast out demons as well. It doesn't seem like they actually were because of the way the crowds react to Jesus doing this. But he points out their inconsistency. And then he shows them the alternative. But, he says, verse 20, If it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Like, What if the kingdom is actually here, he's saying? What if you're blind to it because of your unbelief? What if God is in your midst and you hate him, Jesus is implying, because you never really had any affection for him. And he goes on to explain what has just happened by a parable in verses 21 and 22, a very short parable. And in this parable, Satan is a strong man. He's guarding his own palace and goods, but Jesus is a stronger man who attacks him, who overpowers him, and who takes all that he has and divides it up amongst and for his people. So it's a picture of what's actually happening at this point in the spiritual realm, right? In the unseen realm. Because remember, Jesus has already conquered Satan in the wilderness. He, he countered every attack of Satan with, with the very word of God, with scripture. And he came out of the desert victorious so that he walked straight into Galilee and says, the very first thing he says, Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. In other words, Jesus is like the commander of this new kingdom. And he's on the war path. And he smashes the, the strongholds of Satan. And he plunders and he rescues. He's a conquering king. Not just that day in the wilderness. And not just uh, this day on the way to Jerusalem. But even now, even in your life, when the battle is raging. And that's why verse 23 is for us especially, because Jesus looks at this group and he sort of sums up the state of things with this. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Everyone, Jesus says, every single person is a part of this clash of kingdoms on one side or on the other. Um, On October 30th, 1938, a Sunday night, 
Orson Welles began his War of the Worlds radio show. This was before Orson Welles became very famous for Citizen Kane. War of the Worlds was one of the first science fiction books to depict an alien attack, which is kind of cliche now, right? But uh, this was on the front end. And so Orson Welles decided that he wanted to adapt it for radio. And so Sunday evening in 1938, this is like the golden age of radio. Millions of people are tuning in. And the only problem is that most of them tuned in too late to hear that the show was actually a show, that it wasn't real. And so they flip to the station and they just hear this announcer who is describing a Martian emerging from a spaceship that had crash landed in New Jersey. It says uh, on the radio, they're saying, something's wriggling out of the shadows like a gray snake. Uh, I can see the thing's body now. Their eyes are black and gleam like a serpent. The mouth is V-shaped with saliva dripping from its rimless lips. That's what y'all look like after finals, right? You just... <laughs> the announcer went on to describe the aliens mounting walking war machines and destroying thousands of National Guardsmen. They released poison gas into the air, and soon Martians were reported to be landing in Chicago and St. Louis, killing everyone in sight. What do you think happened? All of America completely panicked. Total freak out. It is possible that up to a million Americans that night thought that aliens were actually taking over the world. So New Jersey highways were completely jammed with cars. People ran and hid. People begged policemen for gas masks. Right, a rough night for the police, it sounds like. Uh, one woman ran into a church in Indianapolis and screamed that New York had fallen. It's the end of the world, she yelled. Go home and prepare to die. In other words, people responded to a fake war as if it were real, but Scripture says that we have the opposite problem, that we respond to a real war, this war of spiritual kingdoms, like it's fake, because we can't see it. And so we go long periods of time without repenting. And so we dilly-dally in God's Word, and we sort of pick and choose what we like in there, and what makes us feel good, and we don't really apply it to ourselves. And that's why we harbor bitterness in our hearts towards our parents, and towards our friends, people who have wronged us, and towards ourselves for not living up to our own expectations for ourselves. You know, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a really brilliant book called The Screwtape Letters. The whole book is a conversation between an older, wiser demon named Screwtape to his young nephew named Wormwood. A lot of it is advice about uh, how to keep humans from understanding this great battle that we're in. And at one point, Screwtape writes to Wormwood, and he says, It does not matter how small the sins are provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. And so that's really our temptation, right? Um, To live as if there is no prince of demons, as if there is no danger, as if the kingdom of God has not come down in Jesus himself and demanded 
a response from us. Um, But Jesus says this. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. That the clash between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of Jesus is very real. It was real in the garden when our first parents fell in sin. It was real when Jesus offered himself up on the cross for the sins of his people. And it's real in your life day by day. Like the kingdom of darkness would love to have you. Just like I had the Pharisees and the scribes. And so this is our... uh, Second section here. Whose house? Jesus says this, verse 24. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. What is Jesus saying here? This is like demon repo, right? He's directing this at people who may have appeared to respond to him for a time, but actually didn't. At people who seemed to turn their their life around, they became like houses that were swept and put in order. This is like the parable of the sower that we talked about a few weeks ago. People whose plant grew, but it didn't have any roots, right? So things look pretty good for these people. For the Pharisees and the scribes, it's all about appearance. And they clean their house, if you will, but they didn't invite Jesus in. And they're spiritually empty. And so their house may be sterile, it may look really good, but it's unlocked, it's unguarded, and it's unfilled with, with faith in Jesus. And so the demon returns. He never really left, right? He calls it my house. And so unbelief takes root again in the last state of that person, Jesus, Jesus says, is worse than the first. So in some ways, it's the same thing, right? There is no neutrality. A clean house, an empty house, a sterile house is really no better than a dirty one. It may even be worse. So what what does a sterile house look like? A sterile house looks like a Pharisee's heart. It looks like somebody who has it all together on the outside, right? Like morally upright, kind of clean, put together all the right stances, on the right social issues, maybe even solid on doctrine. Maybe at the, at the church, every time the door is open, maybe at RUF uh, in all of our many activities. But there is no love for Jesus Christ. And grace is standing outside the door, knocking. And there's no joy and satisfaction in Jesus, in who he is, and in what he's done. And there's no drive to become more like him every day by grace. In other words, even if your life is as scrubbed as it can be, even if all of the worst parts of you are just kind of tucked neatly out of sight, if you're not filled with Jesus Christ, then you're filled with sin. And the hard saying of Jesus here is that that makes you a part of Satan's kingdom and not the kingdom of God. And that sounds really harsh, I know, right? But this is God's word, that there's no middle ground. There are no spiritual Switzerlands out there if you will. There are no truly empty houses. The demon was out of town, but he wasn't gone. So nobody's neutral and nobody's just okay. And that's part of the problem, right? That we live in sort of a world of pretty good. Um, How are you doing? Pretty good. Can't complain. Not too shabby. My personal favorite, busy, super busy. We're all busy. We know. It's like we sort of love being in the middle. Like, hey, we're all doing the same thing. We're all just, we're good, but we're busy. Um, I think it makes us feel normal. 
But some things in life just don't work that way. They're really black and white, and this is one of them. That you're here or you're there. You're lost or you're saved. You're in God's kingdom or you're outside of God's kingdom. So where does that leave us? This sounds like bad news at this point, right? Where does that leave us? I think it should leave us asking which kingdom we belong to. And examining our lives and our hearts and asking, whose house is this, right? Is Jesus here? Does he fill it? And so the good news comes here in verses uh, 27 through 28. They help us. This is our last point. Who's blessing? So the tension is high. Jesus has been accused. He's responded. And now a voice comes from the crowd. A woman says, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. In other words, blessed be your mother. There's a woman shouting this. She's exercising a very special kind of bravery to be uh, raising her voice in this mixed crowd. A lot of religious leaders. And Luke in particular is a gospel writer. Side note, is always very careful to show Jesus' kindness towards women. And so Jesus responds, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So he's not denying what she says. He's simply magnifying it. He's perfecting it. Who can be blessed in this war of kingdoms? Like, how can you be sure what side you're on, whether you're in the Lord's army? He says, those who hear the word of God and keep it. Jesus is saying, if you listen to me, if you respond in faith, in obedience, you'll be a part of God's kingdom. You'll be blessed. In other words, don't just hear the gospel message, respond to it, obey it. Because a non-response is a response, right? But those who hear it and those who obey and keep it, blessed are they even beyond Jesus' own mother, he says. And so how does this help us? How do we tie it all together? Bring this in for a landing. Don't worry. First, the kingdom of God is here. Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Friends, that has happened. Jesus has come. He's come. He was born under a woman, born under the law. He lived a perfect life on earth. He performed many miracles like this. And then he humbled himself, even to the point of death, even to the point of death on a cross, taking on all of the sins of his people. And then he was raised on the third day. And that is the gospel. That's the good news, that the stronger man has come. He's already raided Satan's palace, and he has plundered, and he's rescued. So the kingdom is here. But as we often say in Christianity, the kingdom is not yet. Jesus won the victory on the cross. The end is secure, but the skirmishes, the battles continue until the day of his return. The cross was like D-Day, Right? The decisive blow fell, but VE day is still to come when Christ returns. And so on that day, there will be no question what kingdom anyone is a part of. But until then, we are compelled to ask, whose side am I on? So the best diagnostic tool, in my opinion, that we have uh, is the Word of God. How do you respond to the Word? Do you listen to it? Do you obey it? Do you treasure it? Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. If you responded to God's word, if you put your faith in the word become flesh, in Jesus, and thrown yourself on him, cast all your sins on him. If you haven't, or if you try to live a sort of moral middle ground to just be okay, then uh, I really think uh, if we look at the parable of the unclean spirit, your last state will be worse 
than the first. And the irony is that Jesus never tells you to do that. He says if you try to clean yourself up before you invite him in, that you're disqualified, that you don't get it, that you're a, a hoarder of sin, that it's just kind of stacked in your house like old newspapers and cat droppings and things that are in hoarders' houses. And you can't clean it up. Jesus has to come in as is and clean it up for you. But if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you know that you're a member of his kingdom by faith, then Jesus has already fought for you. Ephesians 2 says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan, right? The prince of the power of the air. And that's the picture of all of us before we know Jesus. But then grace poured down on you. And in Jesus, he, he's broken into your heart, right? Into your sinful heart. The place that the devil thought that, that he had on lockdown. And Jesus attacked him and overcame him. And he claimed you as his own. So the crowd marveled when Jesus cast out this demon, right? But we should marvel that he's cast out our own, right? And cast out uh, our own sinfulness, uh, Colossians says, He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And that should cause us to worship Him. That should cause us to sing the praises of our Rescuer and to, to tell of His mighty works. Tell people where you used to be. Tell them where you are now. To so talk about the good news. And moreover, this gives us hope. Because the battle still rages, right? I mean, we... Uh, still grind through days of discouragement and days of confusion and pain and days when our own sin and the sins of the people around us, the brokenness that we see in this world just beats us down, right? Those days happen. And uh, there are days even when we don't really believe that the kingdom has come. We don't really believe that it's here. And so our sinful hearts, we just want to desert, right? We just want to run away. And those are the best days to throw yourself on Jesus. To throw yourself on Jesus because he is the stronger man. And if you're in Christ, if he's in you by faith, God's grace and mercy can never leave you. There are no deserters in God's army, right? There's no such thing as a reverse jailbreak. You're his by grace. Christ has claimed you. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you again for your word, and we pray that you would be with us and that you would teach us from your word. Uh, We pray that we would understand uh, that your kingdom is better and that we would want to be in it, that we would want to serve you, and that we would know that all of this happens by grace and that we don't have to clean ourselves up to be in your kingdom, that you come in and clean us up uh, in our sin. We thank you for that, Lord, and we pray that you will be with us uh, the rest of this evening. In Christ's name, amen.